Clinker Factor, the cement industry podcast. Welcome to the Clinker Factor, a podcast from WCA which looks at the cement industry's response to climate change around the world and other topics of interest. I'm Ian Riley, CEO of WCA and your host on the Clinker Factor. And today I'm talking to Alex Hall, CEO of Concrete AI. Um, Alex, welcome. Uh, please introduce yourself and explain how you got involved in the concrete industry. Well, thank you, Ian. Uh, good afternoon to you. It's not afternoon here, that's for sure. Um, yeah, my so I guess a bit of my background, um, always been interested in construction. My 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 father in particular was involved in property development and that went to university, did a construction management degree, got into the construction world and then quickly established that I didn't like hopping around the really remote parts of Southern Africa. So with uh, some very good fortune, was introduced to a, a company, which was a subsidiary of what is now Wholesome um, in 1999, and had a variety of roles with them, uh, which ultimately culminated in me being um, transferred to the United States in 2007, mainly focused on the aggregate and ready mix side of the business. I, I was very fortunate to do a, a stint on the safety side as well uh, for, for both the cement and aggregate businesses. Uh, and then my last role with Wholesome um, was in charge of the ReadyMix Performance Group in the in the US. And uh, through that, I actually had my um, introduction into what was the initial establishment of, of this company uh, through the University of California in Los Angeles. Mm. And, and can you explain a little bit about Concrete AI and the background of Concrete AI, what it is that you're trying to achieve? Absolutely. So really importantly, Concrete AI was formed, well, the company was only recently incorporated in, in, in 2021, but the, the the genesis for the idea actually occurred around 2015, 2016. Um, I was introduced to a guy at University, uh, University of California, Professor Gaurav Sant. Uh, he was busy working on a, on a a related but different project at the time. It was called CO2 upcycling. So it was really one of the first uh, projects that was focused on carbon removal. Uh, and this is really, um, it, it eventually morphed into a company I'm sure you're familiar with, which is Carbon Built. Uh, and the premise behind that is effectively the uh, sequestering of CO2 uh, through the addition of Portlandite into into uh, concrete block. Really great idea. Um, we, we really were following that pretty intensely. And as a result, my introduction to Gaurav happened that way. And we started talking about, you know, what the potential applications of artificial intelligence could be in concrete. Fast forward, I, I actually left uh, Wholesome in 2017, but, but managed to stay involved with UCLA with my new employer, which was actually a construction company, a very forward thinking construction company uh, uh, out of Boston called Suffolk. They actually uh, remained part of a consortium at UCLA called uh, Transcend. And we kept on seeing all these really interesting innovations that were coming out of the university and, and specifically the development of, of how the use of artificial intelligence could really benefit concrete producers uh, in multiple different ways. And you know, eventually I, I was made the offer to join the company. And, and so I joined uh, Concrete AI in 2021. The, the the real underlying premise behind concrete AI is is looking at the fundamental building blocks of concrete. So looking at each individual raw material ingredient, the cement, the, the aggregate, the sand, 
chemical admixtures, and then obviously the supplementary cementitious materials as well. Getting a deep understanding of both the physical and chemical characteristics, and then really importantly, the envir environmental impact uh, characteristics as well, which typically manifests itself in, in the form of the global warming potential. Um, so in other words, the amount of embodied uh, carbon. And then what we're able to do is take that data, actually harvest it from existing uh, software modules that producers have, feed it into our models, and then are able to effectively give back to the client an optimized mix design with some suggested changes from original reference mixes that either allow them to optimize the cost of their concrete or very importantly, optimize the uh, embodied carbon footprint of the concrete. So when you started out, uh, did you have in mind that most uh, clients would want cost optimization? And then, uh, you know, as time has progressed over the last couple of years, uh, that shifted towards, uh, towards uh, minimizing carbon? Well, well, I think, you know, importantly, the, the business has spun out of the Institute of Carbon Manage Management. So um, the long-term goal, the long-term focus has always been, look, we, we need to be ready for a, a paradigm shift, if you want, a, a pivot to be you know, more of a, a, a way of thinking about carbon in the economy. Uh, and specifically, when it comes to ready mix, you know, we, we know concrete's the most ubiquitous material in the world after water. However many, I think the last count was close to 35 billion tons of the stuff is produced every year. Um, and again, cement the most a important ingredient from a cost perspective, but also from an environmental impact perspective, how do we use this technology and embrace it to actually address the amount of uh, CO2 impact uh, we're going to have on the planet? So that's always been an underlying feature. You know, I think one of the reasons Gaurav and I agreed on, on the strategy that we needed to use was that, you know, certainly in, in the United States, the the ready mix business is is very very competitive compared to in most other parts of the world. It's it's highly fragmented. Even even the large multinational players have relatively small market shares, and as a consequence of that, you know EBITDA margins are pretty low. I mean, you know, for for any business where you're working that hard to have very high single digit EBITDA margins, typically, and then you can imagine if if you own the fleet. EBITs are way down at 5%. So in my opinion, if, if we couldn't demonstrate economic value immediately to a producer, it was going to be very hard to say, oh, there's a potential revenue stream or revenue opportunity from low carbon concrete at some point in the future. So yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the initial driver is fundamentally about cost and cost reduction, but there's also a very strong bent towards the, the carbon side. That being said, uh, what we've seen is, is in reality, our, our kind of go-to-market strategy is now expanding what's well, had to expand beyond ReadyMix. And in fact, our, our first commercial contract is with a, uh, a data center owner. Uh, they build, operate, and, and own data centers. And their ask from the get-go was, give me the lowest embodied CO2 concrete. And why are they asking for that? I mean, what, what is it that's driving their requirement for, for low carbon? Well, I mean... I don't think this is speculative because there's some, you know, for example, if, if you have a look at a company like Meta, the, the parent company of Facebook, um, they've actually done some work recently in Illinois with a company called Ozinga ReadyMix. And I, th I think fundamentally, this is this is where, you know, all big companies that have got net zero ambitions and, and specifically companies that have got net zero ambitions that are relatively short order. Facebook has a, a net zero, for example, of, of 2030. 
and and part of their commitment as well has been the scope three emissions so when you're looking at you know legacy assets that have got many 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 tons of concrete um embodied uh with embodied carbon as you can imagine that represents you know in some cases tens potentially hundreds of thousands of tons when the time comes that one has to play the piper and your science-based initiatives get down to all right here we here is day zero or you know whatever it is january 1st of you know 2030 or december 31st at some point you've got to pay the piper and um the the reality is that even with renewable energy use for you know, one and two on the you know on, on the production and maintenance side of things at some point you're probably going to have to buy removal credits removal credits are pretty scary one of the companies i'm involved with actually has a purchase agreement where uh, removal credits are uh, purchased at 260 dollars a ton but you know i i, I can cite articles in, in reuters that that showed removal credits at the end of 22 approaching well approaching they were north of 1300 dollars a ton so this is one of the challenges is that the you know removals are going to be one of the mechanisms that these companies have to look at so that being the case, it makes a whole lot of sense now where to try and A, reduce your load today from an embodied CO2 perspective. But then the reality also is from a from a cost perspective, you know, you could probably take some kind of a, a cost premium today. And that is certainly going to be massively offset by whatever the impact of, of net zero target dates are going to be. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned scope three, because I think we see an increase in scope three reporting all of it to date i think is voluntary um, but it, it's happening more and more companies are setting targets including scope three and i think some of the uh, companies have probably set their scope three targets without perhaps realizing just how big their scope three emissions are i, I was talking to a house builder um, last year uh, and uh, they were very surprised at the impact that including scope three had in, in multiplying their emissions by 100, because, of course, you know, most of it is in the materials or in the usage of, of, of the homes. Uh, and I think this is, as uh, companies set targets and realize what they're going to need to do, it's going to drive uh, demand and, and hopefully innovation as well. And, and talking about innovation, um, you're normally based in California, but I see today that you're uh, not in California, you're in Las Vegas. So what takes you to Las Vegas, Alex? Other than the, the mandatory couple of nights out here, um, one of the reasons we have the first and foremost, uh, it was the National Ready Mix Association's annual general meeting. Uh, we're we're um, one of the members of their services group, a uh, really important uh, organization within the United States. But also you may be able to see a, a number of really interesting displays outside. Those, that's actually a, a very, very large uh, construction expo called Conag, Con Expo. Uh, one of the biggest in the world and a great opportunity to see all new technologies. But the primary reason for us being here is that we were actually uh, awarded uh, the Innovation of the Year prize by um, the National Radiomix Association for our optimization software. Well, con congratulations uh, uh, for that award. Uh, and and what, what does that mean to you in practice? Well, I, I think uh, a lot of it is validation for the methodology that we've approached, um, we used as our approach. You know, for, for an industry body that represents uh, the majority of producers in the United States and, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, produces in excess of 300,000 cubic meters a year, over 400,000 uh, cubic yards, um, it, it means a lot to us because, you know, in order to get that recognition, we, we also had to be able to demonstrate there's a commercial viability to the product. 
uh, but also that you know it can have a meaningful impact environmentally as well. And so, you know, with with um, our, our, our beyond our, our initial pilots, some of the original commercial mixes that we put into into play um, ended up having pretty significant uh, reductions from an embodied CO two perspective. In fact, north of twenty percent. And uh, you know, the interesting part with that is is you know the, the technology is such that that it actually uses some techniques that humans typically would uh but obviously we are able to you know do hundreds of thousands of transactions in the, in the same amount of time that a human would typically do you know one or two but it still allows humans to apply judgment to a situation um and rather than just say oh well you know the ai is always right it's not always right that's that's not the case you you are always going to need a human to interface with the software and say yes this makes sense this doesn't uh, the AI designs uh, a new mix design yeah, in what are considered optimal conditions, but you can imagine that on you know, January the fourth in Chicago, uh, you know it was you know, negative sixteen degrees Celsius. So what do you do then? You can't use exactly the same mix design. So that's where the human judgment component comes into it, and and for us it's really interesting because it's a it's almost more of a, it's kind of algorithmic business thinking where the human can actually engage with the artificial intelligence and and apply judgment which is something you know ai can't do yeah i, th I think uh, chat gpt has uh, shown us that ai is not always right uh, <laughs> impressive though it is in many ways Absolutely. Um, and and this um uh, topic of the uh, the interface between the operator or the human and and the ai system is one that i think comes up repeatedly in in different applications of ai uh, and clearly is is you know one of the keys to making the the technology effective, if you like, in its deployment. I, I wonder if we just uh, look at the the source of of uh, demand for for um, the future. We hear a lot about the uh, IRA uh, over here, and I, you know, it's it's clear that it's had a big impact already on electric vehicles. Um, is it having an impact in in your area in in construction and concrete? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, that's actually the the kind of third go-to-market strategy. Um, we've been approached by some you know large multinational construction companies that have subsidiaries in the U.S. with focus typically on on infrastructure, you know, wastewater treatment works, roads, that kind of stuff. And um, the the way the IRA has been structured is, um, you know, they've typical um, kind of federal document, there, there's all sorts of different elements and components that are going to be applicable to different parts of the businesses. But certainly in, in, in their case, you know, they very clearly have requirements to ensure that in order to meet some of the uh, scope mandates from an um, embodied carbon perspective on building materials, um, they're going to have to find alternate mechanisms in order not just to secure the bid, but to qualify for the bid as well. There, there are definitely a few challenges out there. You know, one of them being whether or not items like cement or aggregate are actually even going to be applicable for this, which is kind of crazy because you know how much steel is made in the U.S. versus how much cement is manufactured. You know, there's a north of 100, 110 million tons uh, produced in the U.S. last year. You know, plus exports, uh, imports. You know, so th these are these are truly products that are made in America and, and really should be considered as you know part of something that's applicable to the act and and you know very clearly uh in terms of of consumption the, the federal and state governments consume a lot of these building products uh, in the u.s and you know why why not take the opportunity to to maximize the impact as a consequence yeah so, so i think this is one of the things that 
has uh, been clearly uh, a potential everywhere in the world is uh, for government procurement to encourage change within the cement and, and concrete industries and uh, you know the question is what what's the most effective way of doing that so so what you're seeing here is um, a requirement for uh, to meet some low low carbon criteria in order to qualify for the project is is that how it works yeah that's correct and what's uh, another thing that's really interesting is is for example uh the epa have earmarked 250 million dollars uh for the advancement and development of epd documentation to to effectively act as the the, the base unit of measure to ensure compliance with this. So it's it's definitely a, a holistic approach from sort of a federal level to, to come in and, and see this uh, you know, mechanism being put in place to, to actually measure A, efficacy, but but B, the actual result in terms of you know, are people doing this? You know, it's, it's one thing to be able to measure, but it's actually then putting the measurements in place at a contractual level and, and validating that these targets are actually being met on a contract by contract basis. Now, I honestly, um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit wary of this. I think we saw this in you know 2008, 2009 when TARP came out. One of the challenges is going to be shovel-ready projects, and so it, it's going to be really difficult to convert um, existing infrastructure projects to meet these criteria. But I think what you will see is that this will become part of an expectation going forward with elements of these specifications being being written into contract documentation. So you know. It, Long term, it has to have an impact, and and you know one of the things that the National Ready Mix Association, for example, are already heavily focused on, is the conversion of mixed design specifications from uh, prescriptive specifications with you know, fixed fixed ratios, sometimes fixed volumes of cement, to more performance based specification. And, and I think this is this is definitely going to be one of the mechanisms that gets used to push that. So I, I think in the um, in the UK in the in the uh, precast area it's very much focused on concrete performance specifications right. uh, but but still in the ready mix uh, it's a um, a recipe well or a, a composition based specification and and is there a difference in in the us uh, between the, the way it's treated in in ready mix and uh, precast oh yeah yeah i look I, I think so and i think you know even if i um, again a, a bit of a plug for the institute of carbon management here one of our sister companies uh, uh, is a is a spin out of uh, RCM. It's called Carbon Built, and and for example, uh, they're actually on the way to commercialization right now. And and their technology um, is such that they can actually sequestrate some CO two into these block products. You know that that kind of opportunity certainly does not exist uh, in the ready mix world at this point in time. So you're actually seeing the movement towards that kind of stuff happening in in the precast world. And yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, the ready mix is, is certainly pretty prescriptive, especially at, at state and federal level. So if you're working with any of the DOTs uh, or the FAA, for example, these are really, really um, typically heavily prescriptive mixes. And, and in many cases, significantly over-designed from a performance perspective. And then, you know, again, we're able to demonstrate that both quantitatively and qualitatively, you know, using our software. Um, if you if you look at the kinds of recommendations that your software is is, is recommending, yeah, um, are, are there some particular sort of characteristics that that you see in terms of it recommending change in cementitious or change in aggregate particle size or this sort of thing? Yeah, so you know it's it's really interesting from a global warming potential perspective. Purely speaking, 
a lot of this is determined by geography and 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 I need to qualify that because typically it's the availability of of a product like fly ash that is going to make the biggest difference from a substitution perspective um you know in comparison to fly ash the the global warming I mean, in comparison to cement for example even a um, an IL cement the the GWP of fly ash is negligible slagment does require processing so you know let, let's just use a round number for cement let's say it's you know 800 kilograms per ton co2 slags around the, the 120 mark when and you know flash as being a waste product is is way 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 down you know in some cases below 15 that, that we've seen reported so again one of the realities in the u.s is uh in in some areas it's it's cost prohibitive to have you know pulverized flash from coal-fired power stations forget it on the west coast and so what we're starting to see is more of a preponderance of the natural um, fly ashes coming out, specifically out of Utah and Northern California. And those actually provide real opportunities. You know, that being said, one, one, of, one of the interesting things when, when you start really digging into, you know, the, the results that the software generates has been the impact of aggregate. Now, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense that that would be the case, both by mass and by volume. Aggregate is by far the biggest uh, constituent in concrete even though cement is typically 40% of the cost. Um, and, and what we've actually been able to see is, is in areas where cement substitution is literally not available. There's just no product available. Aggregate changes and, and you know, moving to higher quality aggregates with, with less water demand, et cetera, can have still a pretty significant impact. I mean, you know, in Northern, uh, in the Bay Area, for example, we've seen cost reductions in the order of, you know, five, 6% just with changes to to aggregate constituents so uh, again it, it really is all about geography um uh, you know the kind of the, the quick win in the concrete world has typically been with with flash substitution as you can imagine uh, in the us uh, with a lot less energy being generated by coal um we, we're not seeing as many of those opportunities anymore but what we are seeing is people getting back into flash reclamation from uh, many of the old coal-fired power stations. That that is certainly going to be an industry that does pick up. You know, obviously the the Germans don't have that problem. They seem to be bringing a lot more coal in, online, and they've probably got a lot more fly ash. So good luck to them. Yeah, well, I think not only fly ash, of course, but uh, there's also a lot of old uh, slag stockpiles. Absolutely. Uh, in in North America and and Europe, um, and and people looking at uh, ways of doing that um uh, we had uh, a company called the material evolution on on the podcast a, a few weeks ago and and they're looking at uh, slag um at a very old uh, slag stockpile in um in, in teesside i i think it was yep. 100 million tons or something like that uh, that, that accumulated over god knows how many years up there um, uh, and but th they were looking at um, a geopolymer mix. Is is that something you're starting to see people being interested in? Not really. I think you know. Um, just to be really clear, one of the realities is this is a pretty sold out market. I mean, we're under a lot of pressure from a supply perspective, and um, a, lo a lot of the clients that we're dealing with, you know, even at this point in time, have got you know upwards of eighty percent of their order book secured for the year, which is which is kind of intuitive because, uh, you know, but we also do know the construction cycle can tend to lag. So, so that may really be the case. Uh, a lot of our clients are, are really just focused on, on trying to get the product out and, and exper experimentation like that it does take a bit of time. Uh, we, we certainly seeing that kind of stuff uh, happening at the universities. Universities are absolutely uh, looking to start working towards that stuff. But from a commercial perspective, 
Um, there are a handful of producers that are doing that, but but I, I wouldn't exactly call it mainstream at this point in time. Right, right. Um, and are there are there other trends that you're you're picking up that uh, you think will affect the concrete business, say in the next five years? Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I, even you know, just in this trade show and, and seeing some of the uh, some of the admixture supplies and some of the products they're bringing online. I mean, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but uh, there's some guys out there that are really cutting edge with with some significant products both uh, both on the actual chemical admixture reduction side and then um, using admixtures to reutilize return materials as well which was actually quite a um, an interesting one for us to see because you know we got to try and get ahead of the game in terms of data collection and understanding what the impact of that is going to be but very very interesting to see what's happening on the admixture side of the business um Hopefully, we'll uh, we, we're going to have an announcement in the near future about a partnership we're trying to develop with one of the admixture suppliers. But yeah, it's 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 pretty fascinating to see what's happening on on the chemical side. Well, good, and I think that's a, that's an excellent upbeat note on uh, on which to conclude, Alex. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for the time and and appreciate this, Ian.